I think our current moment is one of fairly extreme cognitive dissonance um, in the sense that there are, and there have been for decades, uh, for the entire time, in fact, that the climate diagnosis has been emerging over the last half century, the emerging infectious diseases paradigm uh, has also uh, been emerging from similar groups of scientists with similar ecological explanations, um, kicking off with the struggles to make sense of the HIV um, AIDS pandemic in the 1980s, the desperate efforts to kind of trace the origins of that back to the disturbed ecologies of, of, of Africa under imperial and, and post-colonial rule. Um, and then forward from there to the identification of um, East Asia and China in particular as one of the, the, the incubators, the furnaces out of which these diseases emerge. Um, but when it comes to actually undertaking truly radical change, a thoroughgoing conservatism, right, a thoroughgoing, a, a vision that would actually really try and put us on a path to sustainability, as you say, the conversation stops. I mean, uh, astonishingly, mm. terrifyingly, the conversation even appears to stop when it's a matter of actually organising a high-pressure, well-funded, concerted global um, vaccination campaign. Welcome back to AIAC Talk, which is Africa's a country's weekly talk and interview show. I am, as always, your host, William Shorkey, coming to you from Johannesburg. And our show is produced, as always, by Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town. A reminder, if you've missed out on some of our latest episodes, last week we spoke to Maha Bengada, who is the Economic Program Manager at the Tunis Office of the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, we had a wonderful conversation with her about the ongoing political crisis in Tunisia. And the latest there is that the Prime Minister, Najla Boudin, has announced a new government. And President Kaye Sayed is continuing to rebuff accusations that the stunt he's pulled since July constitutes a coup. And Tunisians are growing more and more frustrated with the direction of his leadership. So if you want to understand the roots of the political crisis, if you want to understand how it has to do with how Tunisia's political class has failed to deliver economic transformation since the 2011 revolution, do check out that episode. It's available on your favorite podcasting platform and select clips can also be found on YouTube. A reminder to subscribe to Africa as a Country on your favorite podcasting platform on YouTube, as well as to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We appreciate whatever support that you give us. And if you are willing to make a monetary contribution, then do head over to our website when you can donate directly to this project. So I'm very excited about today's episode. It happens to be a Tuesday, as in the day of the week when we are recording. And it also happens to be a Tuesday. And by Tuesday, I'm making a really terrible pun to refer to today's guest, who is Adam Tews. Adam Tews is a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of Crashed, which is the winner of the Lionel Galba Prize, a New York Times notable book of 2018, as well as one of the Economist books of the year and a New York Times critic's top book. He lives in New York City and, as I said, teaches at Columbia University. But on top of that, also runs what I think is probably one of the best substacks out there, Chartbook, which is about everything political economy, everything graphs, charts, and numbers, and also co-presents the One and Twos podcast, which is brought by Foreign Policy and co-hosted by the Foreign Policy's uh, Deputy Editor Cameron Abadi. So on today's show, we're going to talk about his latest book, which is called Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Professor Tews, uh, we're so happy that you've made the time to come into the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. I mean, uh, what a, you know, what a really, really magisterial book in terms of its scope, in terms of all of the, the topics that it tries to cover. And I, I really hope we get to, to cover as much of it as, as possible today. But I think one place that I want to start at is uh, a core theme of the book is that when thinking about the really unprecedented interventions of central banks around the world last year, one of the things that made that possible is the political defeat of the organized left, at least the organized left in, in Euro-America, which culminated in the failure of the Sanders and Corbyn project, but 
really dates back all the way to the defeat of Labour in the 1980s. So all of this really ambitious and adventurous crisis fighting, which was primarily undertaken by central banks and which we'd never seen before, only happened because the left was pretty much out of the picture. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? I do think, I mean, we are in an extremely ambiguous situation and I, I hope the book contributes to clarifying it. And that, that at least is the ambition. Um, because on the one hand, we did see these extraordinarily ambitious fiscal and monetary responses. I mean, it's tempting to say everywhere in the world, and that is in some senses, <coughs> sorry, that is in some senses what is rather interesting about 2020 is we did in fact see fiscal responses in practically every country, but of course, gradated by scale. Uh, but even a player like South Africa, for instance, does a very substantial fiscal response in the end. These are backed up by central bank action. So central banks buying government debt. Again, we see that across what's now called the emerging market world to a considerable extent. Though that combination of policies is dramatic. It's unprecedented to a degree to see it happening across both the, you know, what are called the advanced economies and the emerging market economies simultaneously is really, is really very um uh, unusual. And it tempts one to uh, imagine that uh, what we're seeing here is the possibility of a sort of radical breakthrough to a concerted revival of functional finance, of Keynesian-style uh, radical economic policies. And I, I think that's, as it were, a legacy to an extent, it's tempting to say, yeah. of the progressive politics that we've seen in recent years. The scope for policy debate, the range of options that are considered has considerably widened. But if you stand back a little further and ask yourself why central bankers are willing to do these kind of things, I think you arrive at a rather grimmer conclusion. I mean, they're doing them in part because they have to, because what we saw last year was a truly terrifying unwinding of the private financial system again, as we saw in 2008. Not the same actors, not the same balance sheets, but nevertheless truly terrifying in its potential implications. So their hands were forced. This isn't a sovereign act, if you like, of mm. states choosing to exercise their power, but a forced action. And secondly, they're willing to go as far as they are because they don't feel frightened. They have nothing to be afraid of. If, if as it were, neoliberalism of the 70s and 80s was a defensive project to insulate economic policy from democratic pressure, if we now see central banks doing things which at that time would have been anathema, would have been ruled out as possible politics, you have to ask yourself what's changed about the political constellation. And I think the reason that central bankers do have the degree of freedom they currently do is not just, you know, because they have to, but also because they can. There isn't the, there isn't the risk that, as it were, their policies could be appropriated by an active, forceful, powerful left and turned in a progressive direction. So it's a deeply kind of ironic, almost bittersweet uh, 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 moment in that respect. And that's to put it in a rather aestheticizing way. It's also tragic, in a sense, that the, the options for progressive politics and radical politics have closed to the extent that they have. Part of it seems like an inheritance of a radical Keynesian legacy and putting truth to Keynes's quip that anything we can do, we can actually afford to a large extent with governments running these large balance uh, balance sheets and, and deficits last year. We, we saw that. But you also talk about how a lot of it has to do with channeling the spirit of, of Bismarck when the first welfare state in the world was created in Germany in the late 19th century. And and when that happened, it was done in order to sustain existing social hierarchies rather than, than transcend them. And, a, and a, way, a line you have to explain it is that it's a matter of everything must change, so everything remains the same. So do you think that a, a lot of the, the efforts that, that central bankers undertook in the last year was really just in the interest of, of placating any kind of discontent from boiling over and, and trying to to return to as quote unquote normal uh, a state of of economic affairs as we could. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, placate would be quite strong in the sense I don't think they feared yeah. a, a popular uprising or uh, an insurgency. Certainly not from the left um, in twentieth century. Certainly not in the United States 
or, or Europe, it, it was a more directly conservative impulse. And that also, I think, explains the scale of the action, is that the thing that you can agree to fully mobilise the public balance sheet around, where the limits come off and everyone can agree with Keynes that, you know, we can afford anything that we can actually do, is precisely when what you're actually doing is simply preserving everything as it was before the epidemic struck. I mean, that has, in large parts of the world, become the highest ambition of policy, is to restore us to the condition that we were in before the epidemic struck. Um, of course, that's, that's, that has a, has a very different flavour, depending on whether you're saying it's about the labour market in South Africa or the labour market in the United States, where mm. there was a factor of 10 difference in the unemployment rate between the two countries. Mm. Um, but that indeed was the aim of policy in Europe, in large parts of East Asia and, and in the United States, to do everything necessary to get us back to where we were before. And that's, I think, key to understanding the politics of, of, the, of the life support measures, right? In the sense that that's something that conservatives can sign up to too. Uh, and it's also a sort of guilt-free discourse, right? It's, it's, not, it's not saying that anyone was deliberately re was responsible for the crisis that we were facing. The, the famous moral hazard argument by which, if you like, you know, you shouldn't provide support to people in distress because if you do, you encourage them to the behaviour that caused them to find themselves in the situation of distress in the first place. In other words, you know, you encourage feckless people to remain unemployed. Um, that logic simply didn't apply in 2020, or at least it was difficult to mobilise it rhetorically, at least in the first phase. By the summer in the United States, Republicans are actually, again, believe it or not, making that argument. But in the first phase, not. And so that that removes the constraints. Then things get very uninhibited. And indeed, I think that is the best way of thinking about the scale of the action, that it's a kind of radical, radical conservatism. And what's interesting now, I think, is that it seems uh, in a lot of places there's a growing recognition that the way that man has related to nature, devastated the environment around them, has created the conditions for the recurrence of more pandemics in the future, for new pathogens to be released. But as, as much as there's still that recognition, there's almost an acceptance that a pandemic is largely an event that is outside of our, our control. It's an external shock rather than, than being the, the outcome of, of human actions and, and human decisions. And, and in that way, sort of obscuring how in order to, to have a future where we are not only thinking about how do we mitigate the, 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 the bad event when it happens, how do we prepare ourselves for it? Uh, how do we avoid it altogether? How do we change the fundamental structure of society so that it doesn't happen. Do you think that's, to what extent, because I mean, reading reading the book, it seems like there's there's some moments when there's glimmers of that realization from uh, ruling elites, if that's a, a good way to describe them. Uh, and there's other moments in which that kind of recognition is just as quickly suppressed. I, I think that's a, that's a great description of the state of mind. I mean, I think and this is true with the climate problem as well, right, that, that I think our current moment is one of fairly extreme cognitive dissonance um, in the sense that there are, and there have been for decades, uh, for the entire time, in fact, that the climate diagnosis has been emerging over the last half century, the emerging infectious diseases paradigm uh, has also uh, been emerging from similar groups of scientists with similar ecological explanations, um, kicking off with the struggles to make sense of the HIV um, AIDS pandemic, in the 1980s, the desperate efforts to kind of trace the origins of that back to the disturbed ecologies of, of, of Africa under imperial and, and post-colonial rule. Um, and then forward from there to the identification of um, East Asia and China in particular as one of the, the, the incubators, the furnaces out of which these diseases emerge. Um, but when it comes to actually undertaking truly radical change, a thoroughgoing conservatism, right, a thoroughgoing, a, a vision that would actually really try and put us on a path to sustainability, as you say, the conversation stops. I mean, uh, astonishingly, mm. terrifyingly, the conversation even appears to stop when it's a matter of actually organising a high-pressure, well-funded, concerted global um, vaccination campaign. I mean, so... Mm. so uh, even as the, as the pandemic is ongoing, even as thousands of people are dying every day, still, 
and and with them uh, the risk of a new and even more lethal variant um, multiplying out of those uh, infected populations continues to haunt us. We still do not have, as it were, on the part of the global elite, the G20 leadership. Let's you know sort of summarize it in those terms: the concerted clarity of mind to say, you know, well, top of stack every single day between now and when we get this thing licked is to count how many people we vaccinated each day. Why is that not the news every single day in every major media outlet the world over? Mm. Because on that depends whether any of us can make sensible and coherent plans for 2022. Um, you know, locally, we may feel more or less secure, depending on how the epidemic's going. But in terms of, you know, the broader issue of whether we get another Delta style or something much more lethal variant, which might overwhelm whatever vaccine protection we've managed to provide so far to roughly what slightly over half the world's population at this point. Um, it's, it should really all be about that issue. And, and even as the epidemic's ongoing, there isn't the concerted capacity to, to grasp that. So I think it's, it's an incredibly telling indicator of the capacity for global governance by the people who have made the globalization, which generates this risk. Mm, yeah, yeah. Something, something you see on your book, um, and I don't quite know exactly the the phrase, but just sort of expressing the irony of of how globalization was able to coordinate almost every single activity imaginable, except except governance, um, and how states <laughs> have continuously just abdicated from that responsibility. And and thinking about that, I, I really, I it was reading a book and. Your commentary throughout the last two years—it was the first time I encountered uh, Ulrich Beck as a as a sociologist and thinker—and he he has a term of art for what we're describing as as organized irresponsibility. So, mm. just the fact that despite all of these, as you profile, all of these attempts throughout the last forty years to kind of get the world to a state of pandemic preparedness after SARS after MERS, after swine flu, just the completely astonishing extent to which, in spite of all of that, uh, when Corona came about, we, we stood mute. There was, there was very little that we could, we could do uh, by way of, of immediate response. I mean, China is the kind of somewhat an exception there, but otherwise the rest of the world was, was completely helpless in the initial stages. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a bit of a generational thing. I'm, I'm in my 50s, so I'm a sort of 80s, 90s boy. And there was this generation of theorizing on the part of non-Marxist sociologists like Ulrich Beck, Anthony Giddens, who seized onto this theme of risk and reflexivity. And I think in retrospect, it was prescient and kind of it's valuable stuff to go back to. So there's this book by Ulrich Beck called Risk Society, which came out in English in the 90s. It was published in German just as the Chernobyl accident was happening. And so it became a huge bestseller there because it described this weird state that we all found ourselves in last year, where we were struggling as individuals, as families, as communities to make sense of the contradictory information coming out of the scientific community about the risks that we faced, right? Because we cannot, any of us, individually assess these risks, right? unless you happen to be an epidemiologist or virologist and actually happen to have a lab and an adequate testing capacity. You can't really make a reasoned judgment about the, the, the level of risk that you're exposed to. And yet we have to, and we have to adjust, or rather we find ways of not doing so. And each one of us, as it were, and our communities and governments then have to navigate this this, this space of managing macroscopic risk, risks which are in very complicated ways generated by ourselves and the success, if you like, of our project of globalization and economic growth and the transformation of our relationship with nature. And, and so, yeah, I thought that I thought that when I would recommend it to, to your listeners um, to go back to this to this to this stuff, because it's it's extremely compelling also in the way in which it scopes between the macroscopic, so the level of you know, great power and capitalism in general, if you like, and the dilemmas that it poses for each one of us individually. Um, and it's part of this diagnosis of modernity, which which stresses contingency, uncertainty, risk management as one of its central organizing ideas, right? And it says basically, and this was something we continuously had to negotiate last year, in many of the structures of modernity was still built in an element of tradition, classically around science, right? You, 
you, in a sense, it's this weird combination of approving science as a skeptical project of critical reason, and on the other hand, in moments like the pandemic, simply have to take it, having to take it on trust. In the US, whatever Dr. Fauci said at any given moment, you know, right-thinking, progressive liberal folks were just simply supposed to follow whatever his advice was. And the sure sign of somebody drifting off into the COVID-denying QAnon camp was the single phrase, I'm doing my own research. <laughs> and the moment when somebody says that, you know you're in trouble. But, you know, from the point of view of a kind of enlightened reason, in doing your own research is exactly what we're supposed to do, surely. Right? So, so what these folks in the 80s and 90s were doing was, I think, really productively spelling out these, these quite deep dilemmas of how we navigate a world as complicated as, and, and, and as risky as the one that we, which we discovered we inhabited last year. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to think about doing your own research because the doing your own research paradigm felt, at least in the initial stages, like the dominant paradigm, thinking anecdotally yeah. to to when all of this was just starting to kick off in, in early 2020. And I think one thing that I appreciate about reading the book is being able to reflect back on how much of the sequence of actions that were taken by governments worldwide were not guaranteed, right? Like something I didn't really appreciate, I think until now was looking at how concentrated to uh, a select range of weeks between February and March 2020, when a lot of decisive action had to be taken. But mm. for a brief while just before that, many people around the world in positions of power in ordinary society were quite skeptical about whether or not this pandemic ought to be taken seriously. It almost felt like the corona skeptic position uh, was the mainstream position. Uh, and then something changed. Could you talk us through how that sort of uh, sequence of events happened and, and what it was about, about coronavirus, which, which terrified people so much and terrified people in positions of power, especially, which when you think about it in a historic scale, uh, one could reasonably make the argument that compared to the Spanish flu or compared to something else, it's, it's a relatively relatively mild ailment, but uh, the way we reacted to it uh, was was otherwise. Yeah, no, it's really, I mean, this is another way of formulating this problem of risk society, right? There are two types of error you can make, false positives and false negatives. And and what we, in a sense, were, what dominated the global discourse in, in early in the year was the fear of making a false positive. So panicking over this, just saying, you know, this is crucially important and we ought to do something unthinkable like shutting down global air traffic, which would have been the sensible thing to do in retrospect. If we were going to go the route that we ended up going, that would have been the right thing to do. But because there had been previous near misses, right, so there'd been the swine flu epidemic of 2008-9, where there had been, in the eyes of many people, an overreaction. Um, and then all go, going all the way back to an outbreak of the plague in India in the early 1990s, where there had been a dramatic reaction to this, you know, horrifying news that bubonic plague was spreading in one of the one of the Indian provinces. And, and out of that came a sort of expert discourse that, that was focused essentially on avoiding false positives and was was inherently sceptical. And that was, I think, significantly compounded by the fact that this started in China. And so there was a sort of Western discourse. And this book is written, I mean, self-consciously um, from the perspective of somebody in the United States, obviously of European extraction. So it's written from the point of view of the West. And you couldn't help noticing how quickly people reached for you know, the Chernobyl analogy. So in other words, this was for China like the nuclear accident in the Ukraine was for the Soviet Union in the 1980s. So we exoticized it. We put it behind an imaginary iron curtain. And we didn't recognize that Wuhan was a city of 10 million people, half of whom were affluent enough to get in airplanes on high-speed trains and travel around China and then to the wider world. And this thing, if it was a problem, was coming for us. And the Chinese had identified it as a problem. Why did they identify it as a problem? Why did we all identify it as a problem? I think here there is really a kind of dividing line. I mean, if you live in a country like South Africa or large parts of sub-Saharan Africa where epidemic disease of various types, infectious disease, is a relatively commonplace fact of life, there is, I think, uh, quite a serious difficulty in understanding and comprehending why this particular disease should have unleashed the reaction that it did. But it hit first China, 
And then it spread by way of supply chains and tourism effectively to Europe. And then from there to the United States and then down south to Latin America first. And all of those are countries in which basically the epidemiological transition. So this idea that folks die of things, but they don't die of infectious disease is really hegemonic, is absolutely dominant. And so even a very small perturbation in the risk envelope around something like an infectious disease and COVID is seriously more risky than flu, which kills tens of thousands of elderly people, even in the north, in the global north. But this is much more risky than that. That was enough to unleash a, a huge reaction. And it unleashes the reaction as it does, because what it threatened to do was not just kill lots of people, but perhaps even more terrifyingly for those who are totally habituated to believing there's a medical infrastructure always there to catch them, whatever happens. The real risk was that it would take down the hospital system, a little bit like in South Africa being cut off from the power supply, right? It's a sort of shock to your psyche, to your ability to mm. function. That was the fear in the West, right? Where there is just this presumption that hospitals are there. And that that's what COVID puts in question because if you do get that surge, you don't need a big, a very big surge, even in a rich country with a tightly run hospital system where capacity, excess capacity is minimized for the system to basically stop working. And then you see spiraling casualties for all sorts of reasons, right? So that's, I think, the series of the sequence, series of triggers that turned what is by the standards of the history of pandemics or uh, in light of the sorts of threats which folks normally live with um, in poorer countries, uh, a relatively modest risk. It turned it into the trigger for, for a really radical reaction. Um, because that is the unusual thing about this pandemic, right? It's not Spanish flu. It, I mean, it isn't anywhere near as 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 lethal as uh, something like Ebola, um, or indeed the avian flus that people were afraid of, or MERS. Um, but it creates that tipping effect within a key infrastructure of modern life, and defending the infrastructure then becomes the the central aim of policy. Um, even at the cost of life, if necessary, right? Because what you've got to do, you have this meta calculation that if you sacrifice a certain number of lives, you sustain the capacity of the system then to, to support everyone else. And that's the trade-off that Western governments were engaged in uh, and created this huge shock. I think after that, there's a degree of emulation effect in the rest of the world. And there is also, mm. there are also specific concerns in a country like South Africa, which had a strong wave of infections early on that the healthcare system will be weak and there will be immunocompromised, large immunocompromised populations that will be extremely vulnerable. And so that helps to explain the particularly severe response in a country like South Africa. In India, I think one really has to wonder whether that lockdown in March mm. was not in the end premature. It was certainly excessively violent. It was ill-considered. It was not properly prepared. And it put tens of, tens of millions of people at in through them into into serious you know existential uh, poverty uh, over the following months mm, and yeah and i think another thing that that is i i guess uh interesting to reflect on in hindsight is is you know how could we how could we not anticipate that this would be a worldwide pandemic once again returning to this theme that we we anticipate all of the effects of of globalization, but not when it also means globalizing uh, the, the various yeah. ways in which we've destroyed the, the world uh, that we inhabit. And what I thought that was interesting about your book is you begin with these interesting comments by uh, a Chinese Communist Party establishment intellectual, uh, Chen Yixin, who talks about the way uh, poly crises can emerge in the world today, uh, the way the Chinese Communist Party ought to be attentive to the risks of this phase of globalization uh, and the way in which, at least in the top brass of the Communist Party, there is this awareness of, of the, the knock-on effects of, of any actions that are taken within China and the, the knock-on effect of any actions outside of China that can affect them too. Uh, could you talk a little bit about why you were drawn uh, specifically to to Yishin's uh, set of reflections? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a deliberate provocation, to be honest, um, in the sense that I think we need to start taking more seriously what the Chinese regime says about itself. 
I mean, we need, you know, if we if we allow that the great world historic shift that we're going through right now is a rebalancing towards Asia, then we have to pursue that in the realm of the mind as well. We can't go on pretending that that shift is going to be legible through the categories or only legible or continue to read that shift exclusively through the categories of the West speaking myself as a European American, you know, uh, intellectual. And so we need to actually start engaging with what they are saying, what our counterparts there are saying and how they are conceptualizing the shift. And this is particularly tempting when it turns out that they seem smarter and more interesting about in trying to conceptualize this shift. Um, because to me, what, what was fascinating about 2020, to put it rather academically, is just the way in which everything seemed to be coming together, right? Everything from the personal to the public, to the global, to the geopolitical, mm -hmm. to the economic, everything was kind of compacted in this extreme way. And thinking about the way in which Europe and America on, the, uh, on one and the other hand were thinking about this experience, it struck me that going back to my earlier work on the Eurozone crisis and its aftermath, the European political establishment had come up with this phrase polycrisis to describe the way everything sort of came together, right, in a nightmarish way. And then panning over to the other side of the Atlantic, it struck me that, well, the Americans also have a way of thinking about this, but of course, it largely in the American case is a sort of solipsistic discourse about America's crisis, which was comprehensive mm. in 2020, and the way in which you know, politics, society, racial uh, injustice, um, intellectual dysfunction in the critique of the academy and so on, are also, as it were, it's a polycrisis, but understood basically as the, the crisis of America. So panning across, and I tend to sort of scan the world in this sort of three zones way, it's driven by my economic preoccupations. China, the United States and Europe account for 60% of global GDP. So if you're trying to summarize what's going on, it's not a bad place. If you, if you apply other standards, right, demography or something, you'd end up with a very different mapping. But if you start from the economy, the G20 account for 80% plus of global GDP and those three alone account for 60%. So if you scan across, and you look what's going on in China, you all of a sudden see, yes, these regime intellectuals. I mean, this guy that we're talking about, he's a hardcore security policy dude. I mean, he was sent into mm. um, the Hubei province by Xi Jinping to sort out what was going on and woe betide you if you cross this guy. But if you read his speeches and see what's published in the, in the Communist Party intellectual magazines, you'll see that there he's actually outlining this sort of head-turning analysis of the way in which different sorts of crises can converge, they can overlap, they can induct, they can amplify. So, you know, if you take, for instance, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter protest, a black man is killed in Minneapolis. It's really not an unusual event. But in this particular event case, it spirals outwards to a, a global protest movement. Uh, or you can have sort of what they call induction effects, which is a little bit like cooking on one of those mysterious new cookers where you sort of put the pot on the cooker and suddenly the water boils. Like, I thought that I thought that was a kind of, I don't understand how it works. And I am, I'm superstitious about having them in my own kitchen, but like, it's quite a good way of thinking about, you know, a social, uh, it's a quite good image for thinking about how cause and effect in social life is, off, is often quite indirect like that, right? So there's no obvious flame that is heating one thing, but nevertheless, you get this spontaneous sympathy between two different types of reaction. I think it's got to do with the vibrations of molecules or something, hasn't it? So it's happening at quite a fundamental physical level. Um, so this, this framework I did think was, was an interesting way of, of grasping the situation. And as I say, the, the, the challenge really was to, you know, I assume the vast majority of people that read this book will be in the West. So they sort of wake up and smell the coffee. And if, if Xi Jinping's regime is, as it were, the great world historic contender, then we have to take Xi Jinping thought seriously. We can't just dismiss it as a bunch of ideological boilerplate that's some sort of, you know, just a, a smoke screen for what's actually going on. I, I, as a, speaking as a historian who's worked, say, on the history of the Nazi regime or something, I don't think that's a very helpful way for thinking about how, ideo how ideology works, or for that matter, in liberal countries. I think the folks that describe themselves as realists in Washington actually sort of believe it, right? You know, they they inhabit that world, or liberal internationalists, or what, you know, whatever whatever species they 
think somebody like Anthony Blinken thinks he belongs to. I think he fully inhabits those ideas. So we ought to extend that same principle of interpretation to the Chinese apparatchiks as well. Mm, and especially now when, you know, the, the framework of the day is to sort of capture the contemporary moment as, as one of being uh, a new Cold War and this mm. is analyzed to death everywhere. Um, and I think one thing that is very interesting that you point out is how the new Cold War framing can actually fail in, in capturing what exactly the nature of the great power conflict is between the United States and, and China. And I think this is kind of demonstrated starkly in the book by some comments which are made by Ray Diallo, who's the founder of Bridgewater Associates, and, and Karen Conyol Tambua, who's the head of investment research. And what they say is that ultimately capitalists want to share in Chinese growth too. It is the largest consumer market in the world and the only major economy in 2020 that's still growing. So this feels like a very important and significant difference between the Cold War of the 20th century and the so-called New Cold War in the sense that capitalists are, are trying to hedge their bets uh, against the United States and China rather than patriotically siding with, with the United States. Some of them are, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, this is history that is literally going on around us every single day in, in a city like, in, like New York. Um, you know, the, the, the capitalists are jousting with each other for position, both in the United States and in China. And there is indeed a faction that one could broadly identify with people like Ray Dalio, um, who is a you know a Connecticut hedge funder, or Larry Fink, who is a you know BlackRock guy, or Steve Schwartzman in private equity, who are all deeply, deeply invested in relationships with China. Um, Schwartzman kind of thinks of himself, I think, as the sort of Cecil Rhodes of the 21st century. He's endowed like you know hundreds of millions of dollars for for prestigious Chinese um, fellowships uh, for students to go and study in China. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand, you have people like George Soros, you have folks who are more clearly aligned with the emerging more antagonistic perspective in Washington, who are insisting that, you know, we need to call time on this failed experiment of 30 years of convergence with China. And I mean, you know, down into the details of deal making, um, uh, of regulatory issues, the ups and downs of the stock market on an almost daily basis right now, you can see a really fascinating struggle going on. But folks like Dalio are unafraid, unabashed in simply saying and recommending to American investors. I call it a kind of it's it's not it's kind of beyond capitalism, perhaps less than capitalist realism. It's a kind of capitalist empiricism. He simply says, look, it's my job mm -hmm. to advise you on what to do with your money. And I can't honestly say that you shouldn't be invested in China. I think you should be, you know, and unlike in a previous and unlike the previous Cold War, in this one, you can hedge your bets. You can take a bid. You mm -hmm. can take a bet on both sides. Now, I can't prevent you from they'll say this explicitly. I can't prevent you from taking a patriotic position. You may want to gamble that, you know, America's liberal and free constitution will provide a, an endless source of innovation. Fair enough. Go ahead. But, you know, I think and then he will expound the position He'll basically say, I think, you know, the, the growth record of China speaks for itself. And they will engage in quite serious, thoroughgoing apologetics for the Beijing regime, explaining explaining to their audience of investors why people shouldn't misread what Beijing's intentions are and, and laying out, you know, the, the common prosperity theme as the basis for stable long-run growth in China, which if you pick your investment targets right, will pay off. So you've got to be very careful, you know, and it goes into the details. For instance, baby formula has turned out to be, uh, there was a private equity deal recently done with baby formula, like, you know, milk that you add water to that, um, that people now think is highly politically sensitive because child rearing costs are one of the key areas for the for the Beijing regime. You know, they cracked down on private tutoring because the upper middle class in China was taking advantage of this to gain advantage for the kids. And so apparently also baby formula is now is now politically sensitive. So this is an extraordinary kind of widening of the you know remit of analysis that you have to you have to be you have to be seriously concerned with the biopolitical intentions of Beijing right now to put your billions of dollars in the right place that's not a, that's not where we expected 
this whole story of you know global growth and capitalist convergence to to come out right this isn't the end of history after all it's interesting because i think a, a lot of these dilemmas not only affect so called capitalists i guess but also national governments so to a lot of countries china is an indispensable trade partner it's also a collaborator for green modernization projects for the future and even thinking about countries in the global north such as uh, australia which uh, is part of the world's largest trade bloc led by china the regional comprehensive economic partnership but recently just joined the the AUKUS pact or, or the eu which late last year concluded the eu china comprehensive agreement which has been put on ice so uh, how are countries in the north sort of navigating this difficult balance between uh their own economic interests but also their their political interests in in trying to push back against china's rise uh, it's it's new territory i thought for all of them i think and the europeans were completely wrong-footed by the train of events which i start documenting in the book and which you know has now continued on into 2021 they they did indeed you know conclude this comprehensive investment agreement with china which which was really a little bit of a nothing burger type agreement but it was something that had been on the agenda for a long time it, it secures a degree some greater rights for european investors in china but it was something that, that angela merkel wanted to get finished before she left office uh, and caused a bit of a scandal on this side of the atlantic in the us the biden team were, were indignant that the europeans should have gone ahead and concluded such a deal before the biden administration even took office to which the europeans i think broadly speaking just shrugged because of the convulsions of american politics at the time you know were not something the europeans wanted to wait for but then themselves the europeans found themselves wrong-footed by the fact that china decided to take very aggressive action over the issue of of sanctions which european parliaments were imposing on mid-level officials uh, in xinjiang and so that is basically yes torpedo the investment agreement it's not going anywhere the idea that you could pursue a kind of multi-track policy with china um part of which was as it were pragmatic detente and another part was uh as it were various types of clear demarcation of where we agree and where we quite fundamentally disagree over issues of rights it's not clear that beijing is willing to play that game and the same is true with regard to climate it's not clear that beijing is willing as it were to engage in cold war style competition with the united states and secure policy security policy on the one hand and simultaneously play nice on climate i think beijing will be active on climate but it's being active on climate entirely for its own reasons because it needs to be because you know along with india china and india are the two countries the two big countries the two global powers that that are most exposed to risks from climate change so they they have to act what we are seeing increasingly is the spillover of this for the actions of the global north europe and the united states specifically in relation to potential partners in emerging and low income uh economies and, and and nations of the world and the europeans have just launched a new investment initiative which is specifically designed to counter the one belt one road investments that china's been making in amongst other places in africa um and the united states is sort of reheating this blue point um or blue dot i think it's called program which trump launched which was also an effort in the indo-pacific region in specific in particular to counter the influence of china's investment so we are seeing as it were a cold war style spillover into renewed efforts on the part of europe and the united states japan as well australia to match china's footprint i it's not obvious yet whether the scale of the action is large enough and one of the unfortunate effects of this is that as was the case in the cold war um you know the enormous and hugely diverse expanse of africa gets reduced to a battlefield with china right so a more specific mm. more direct set of relationships between europe and you know uh, uh the african nations is just subsumed into the global struggle with china it's unclear in other words whether out of this we see as it were further veiling further obscurity or actually a more serious engagement of europe for instance with uh both north uh, africa and sub-saharan africa as essential partners in dealing with these same challenges per se and in their own terms 
um, because of the scale of population dynamic to be expected, because of the development opportunities, because of the huge challenges of sustainable development and adequate you know, uh, infrastructure construction, which we're struggling with right now, you know, with, with the lamentably poor power supply in South Africa. But China, at least, was making offers, if you like, of infrastructure investment, hugely problematic, contested and argued over in their own right, but at least centred on that issue and of huge scale. And it's not obvious, really, whether Europe and the United States are in a position to to match that in any any way. Mm. Yeah, there there is a way in which it often feels like in the in the contemporary moment, uh, what was formerly known as the third world, which we now know as either low income countries or emerging markets, are kind of spectators. As you say, they're just standing in the wings or sitting on the benches, waiting to be wooed by either the EU, China, or the United States, and and places like Africa matter only insofar as they cannot fall to China. And as you point out in the book, even China's own flows to the continent are, are starting to slow down there. Beijing's getting worried that investment in Africa is being used as a vehicle for, for capital flight. Um, and so there's a way in which sometimes it occasionally feels like Africa is kind of powerless to do anything to contest the rebalancing of forces around the world. But at the same time, and I think it's important that you do acknowledge this in the book, there are also glimmers of, of bold action and imaginative thinking. So thinking back to last year, April, uh, the Euro-American uh, initiative to, to reissue and reallocate special drawing rights at the IMF, which ultimately failed uh, thanks to our good friends in the United States, um, but which I think was was noteworthy for for how it wanted to to reconstitute the IMF, uh, um, and and other places are are using what you term uh, an emerging market toolkit, which helps them manage the risks of of global integration. But do you think there's a possibility that as the rebalancing of forces happens, that these countries can can sort of leverage that process to their own advantage um, and, and try to, as you say, uh, redraw the, the map of power uh, on their terms and redraw those relationships uh, in their image? One might hope so, I think. And I do think it's incredibly reductive, as you say and suggest, to you know, reduce the, the current situation to one of that old you know, um, Cold War bipolarity, because one of the lessons of 2020 is clearly that, that that just simply doesn't encompass the complexity, the sheer scale, the dynamism, the resources of the world as we know it in the current moment. Um, and you see that in the zone of economic policy, which is my own specialty, uh, in the sense that, yes, uh, uh, players like, like South Africa, um, Turkey, Many of the Latin American countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, have emerged as very capable economic policy actors. They, they, it helps if they're acting in a propitious global situation, which is one in which the Fed is inundating the world with dollars. Um, but that gives them a very considerable capacity for action. And even for entering into relations, I know that, that the deal that South Africa did with I, the IMF is, is controversial. Um, but it's not the same kind of deal that was on offer from the IMF in the past, right? It's much more the IMF acting in the, the role of a sort of facilitator uh, uh, of national sovereignty in handling with, in dealing with the vicissitudes, with the massive ups and downs of global capital flows. There are, in the end, in many of the programs, conditionality, but it's been relatively light touch um, so far. And I think that's worth recognizing. And the IMF has become a major playground for a politics which is quite multipolar. And we've seen it in the recent weeks with an American assault essentially on the position of managing director Georgieva, who has survived. And she survived in part because the Europeans backed her and because uh, very powerful voices from, the, from Africa uh, and from other parts of the emerging and uh, low-income world were very clear about the fact that they wanted her to remain as managing director because by the standards of the IMF, and that's not necessarily setting a very high bar, um, you know, she, she actually took a more open-minded approach to financial assistance in the course of the crisis. But the central question in all of this, for all of, as it were, the relatively optimistic signs that one might point to, 
specifically with regards to to Africa, is is it large enough? Is it coming fast enough? Is the scale adequate? And do we have models for how the huge quantities of money that need to be mobilized to put in place the infrastructure that the giant population of young workers are going to need in Africa in coming decades? Do we have solutions for any of those challenges? And, and on that score, I think, unfortunately, so far, I mean, to say the least, the jury is out and, and there are and there are causes, the causes for, for profound skepticism. But by any reasonable calculation, trillions of dollars need to be flowing into Africa to provide basic transport, energy infrastructure, and it needs to be sustainable. So it needs to be innovative in its technology. Um, and there are proposals of that type and have been circulating on that sort of scale, you know, for at least 10 years, if not more. But it's right now difficult to see, and especially in light of the experience of 2020, one has to be more pessimistic still, I think, of how those kind of sums of money are going to be mobilized. If they get to rely on some sort of public-private partnership, what the terms of that deal is going to be, and how the, the, the effects of this on the ground are going to be equitable, are going to be part of the construction of robust um, uh, structures of governance that provide um, people with, with a square deal in terms of voice, in terms of the rule of law, in terms of the repression of corruption and the stabilization of good structures of governance. I mean, it's all bland, anodyne, boilerplate kind of stuff, but you know that's 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 the central question: the scale, the speed, mm. and the mechanics. Like, how do we make this work? And where are the good examples? And there are some, of course. But how then do you build out from those? Mm. And and how do we avoid this becoming, for instance, a license for large-scale external financial subsidies to types of authoritarianism? Or, or giant kleptocratic systems, as we see in you know Angola or Nigeria, or whatever. Mm. And do you think this poses also potential dilemmas for for the climate question, insofar as there seems to be a, a growing consensus that the only way to to reach global carbon neutrality by a certain dates is to to constrain economic growth to some degree, but there's still large swaths of the world, large parts of Africa. That need to play the the catch-up game as far as economic growth is concerned, as far as catching up to living standards that deliver a decent quality of life, and and how how is that how are those politics going to be navigated? Do you think? I mean, you mentioned that there are innovative solutions, there are ways of thinking of how to do that sustainably, but some of it also seems kind of unavoidable. I. I there's no reasonable scenario in which, as it were, through deliberate mechanisms, growth in Africa is constrained. It would be, it would be, it would be profoundly unjust and and un, I mean, I also think it's just wholly unrealistic, right? Um, mm. It's not, it's not a viable politics. But for the rich countries of the world, a focus in and on on quality, on on redistribution has got to be the priority, and it will be obscene, I think, for the Europeans, the Japanese, the Americans to be chasing higher growth per se at this point. But for large parts of the developing world, in Latin America, in Africa, as you say, in substantial parts of Asia as well, the aim of the game has got to be to increase energy consumption to multiples of its current level. Five, six times the current level of energy consumption is the minimum that's necessary to actually to, to provide to meet the, you know, the United Nations agreed sustainable development goals. And so the question is, how do you mobilize the resource for that? How do you build the infrastructure, provide governance structures that will enable that to be possible? And how do you find the technologies that are not available anywhere in the world right now to do it at the sort of scale that we need to make that, to make that possible? But that is the challenge and it's absolutely immense. And the, the demographic, side of this, the, the sheer scale of the population growth that we're seeing on in both um, East and West, and indeed even in South Africa as well, is makes this all the more urgent. I mean, the, the you know, the, the, the extraordinary uh, demographic dynamic in a country like Nigeria with no established growth model, um, and with a large part of its formal economy, the bit that's available for taxation and that earns hard currency, being essentially dependent on a high cost oil sector, um, that ought to be, that should be a matter, not just of national, but of global concern. 
um, because it's the country now with the highest number of people in absolute poverty. It has a has a ghastly record of maternal mortality um, and uh, an economy which, as far as yeah, dollar earnings and tax base is concerned, is almost entirely dependent on on oil. Mm. And and yeah, and thinking about the next phase, um, you've been doing a lot of thinking on 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 the climate question and. It is going to require this massive mobilization effort of, of resources of of the political <laughs> world. But as we've been discussing, the doesn't seem like in key respects we we've learned our lesson. There is still uh, a degree to which organized irresponsibility still persists. And so I've been wondering about when it think when it comes to to responding to climate change. Uh, something that I think you you mentioned in in another interview, I think it was with Eric Levitz, uh, is that the left should be thinking about appealing to progressive-minded wings of capital. So, not so much finding a new counter-hegemonic subject as much as trying to start building a, a transformative fortunes in the contemporary moment. Uh, given that it's nowhere near revolutionary situation, should we be trying to, to uh, at least convince the sec sections of capital uh, towards the the kinds of structural reforms that are that are necessary to to prevent ourselves from from drowning in in the planet uh, at our own at our own fault and design? If um, if you look back in history at the moments of you know genuine progress that we celebrate in the in the north with regard to the emergence of the modern welfare state and um, the differences between you know the life expectancy and life circumstances of populations in Europe and and their counterparts in the United States at the bottom end of the income distribution, giving you an idea of how serious and important these stakes are. So this is not the question of revolution or not, but it is the question of, you know, the capacity to live a decent, um, relatively secure uh, life under uh, under capitalism. Then then those steps forward have been achieved as the result of coalition building with elements within within business um, uh, and amongst uh, those who command the investment of capital that can be won over to various sorts of compromise over taxation, over government spending, over regulation. And as given the extreme urgency of the climate problem, um, it seems to me imperative that that's exactly the kind of coalition that we need to be looking for in the current moment. And I'm also persuaded by the analysis of the climate problem that says that it is not the kind of problem that, as it were, requires the supersession and overcoming of capitalism to at least achieve some degree of stabilization by 2050. And um, there's nothing in capitalism per se, as far as I can see, that requires the you know, massive and abundant consumption of fossil fuels. That's an abstract statement because we've never seen an actual modern capitalism which didn't. But the best the science and engineering knowledge can tell us, these things can be separated. And it seems possible to imagine coalitions of business interests that could be won over for this kind of shift. And so given the urgency of the, of the, of the problem, um, it, it seems to me that that's where, that's where the, the emphasis should be. And in, in Europe, where serious efforts are being now made to address the climate problem, and in parts of the United States where they are, and likewise in Asia, um, those kind of coalitions are easy to see. They, they exist in practice. So this isn't some sort of utopianism. It's a question of, as it were, encouraging a shift that's already underway. We are now at the point, for instance, where global auto, you know, motor vehicle manufacturers, the, the big players in Detroit, as was, and the European car manufacturers and the Japanese and the Asian car manufacturers and China as well. Also, all of the big players in that huge business, critical to the emergence of the fossil fuel economy as we know it, are all shifting more or less comprehensively, it'll be quite difficult in the global north to buy an internal combustion engine fueled driven truck or car by the mid 2030s. They simply won't be available for, for purchase. So that is one of these coalitions that's shifted. It's also quite clear that in the power generating sector, um, um, 
and in large parts of the world, there is now a determined shift away from reliance on coal in particular towards a, a greener and more sustainable energy mix, in part simply as a result of, of the cost curves. Um, and that takes two of the, you know, the really big sectors in the emissions equation out of the picture. Then there's food and agriculture, which is really difficult to address. Then there's the domestic area, heating, housing, which is also quite difficult to address. But if you approach this chunk by chunk, if you like, it's possible to see in each area coalitions emerging in the global north in large part that could be corralled, could be moved in, in this direction. I mean, there are, you know, there are those five areas. It's food, housing, industry, transport, uh, and power generation. Those are the five areas that have to be fixed to, for us to move forward. And for two and a half of them, there are already clear coalitions in power generation and in transport. There were clear coalitions of big players, even in shipping now, with Maersk having moved to, you know, making promises to go carbon neutral. So that leaves recalcitrance, and the question is how you can, as it were, roll this out globally. But China, Europe, and the United States, at least incrementally, at least in an embryonic form, you can already see those coalitions emerging. And and I think as a as a as a final question, I mean, you're you're a historian, so uh, this is asking you to do something that is that is out of your specialty. But having written a a sort of history of the present for this present to still be unfolding before our very eyes. And mm. for a lot of the lessons that we needed to have learned to have not been learned yet, uh, how do you sort of project the the way the, the rest of the, the COVID shock is going to to unfold and and what do you think is 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 the next thing to to pay close attention to in, in the coming years? Will, will the Fed still be able to keep uh, pumping money into the, the global supply? Will, will interest rates uh, be kept low and inflation curbed and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, money, I don't think is a thing we should worry about. I'm, I'm not. I, I, that is, as it were, one of the lessons we've learned in the period since 2008. And for all of the brouhaha around inflation right now, it is largely the result of supply shocks. In other words, things that are going wrong in the real economy, containers in the wrong place, running out of microchips, that kind of thing. Not enough workers who want to do the sorts of jobs that pay shitty wages, and so they'd rather not do them. Those are real issues, and, and uh, that's what to focus on. I don't think, I think the realm of money, which was catapulted into the foreground because of the 2008 crisis in the banking system itself, is not really where to focus our attention going forward. It's as though we had a heart attack, so we're constantly obsessing about you know, our cardiovascular system, whereas in fact, what we should really be worrying about is our cancer and our Alzheimer's and our rheumatism. And that's kind of where the action's going to be. And those are the things mm -hmm. that I'm most concerned about. I'm extremely worried about the fact that this pandemic isn't over and I don't see the concerted action necessary to bring it to a close. So I think we'll be very fortunate if, as it were, it dies out of its own accord. This has happened before with these kind of pandemics. Maybe we'll get lucky. And then beyond that, as you say, I, I think the, the climate issue is the one that for the rest of my lifetime, and you're younger than me, so certainly for the rest of your lifetime, is going to dominate the, the horizon of expectation, right? Because we could find ourselves within 10 to 15 years in a world so profoundly disturbed that none of the assumptions that we make about normality will obtain anymore. And it is within our grasp. The problem is clearly formulated. This it is within our grasp to move out of this organized irresponsibility and to take, for folks to take charge, for people, for political, for mass political mobilization, but also concerted interest groups and over parliamentary politics to concert around, around this issue of making these transitions. We shouldn't exaggerate the scale of this challenge. This is not like fighting a total war. This is not like World War I or World War II, which often invoked as an example. It's a matter of sustained effort uh, in the order of two, three, four percent of GDP per annum, which for as far as the rich countries are concerned, is something we can easily afford and currently spend on all sorts of things which are much less vital to our collective survival. 
So if we fail at this, it's a truly, it won't be because of the scale of the challenge, really. That's, I think, for me, the sobering lesson here. And unfortunately, that's true of the pandemic as well. We, we have within our grasp the means to solve that problem. And right now, we're failing to do it. So my, my profound concern is that, you know, we are not entering that new age of responsibility. We're, in fact, sort of persistently locked in ever more manifest, ever more over, ever more you know, unacceptable and unjustifiable situations of collective irresponsibility. My generation certainly has a bright future ahead of itself. Uh, I, as I, I say, as I sit here in darkness in South Africa, experiencing load shedding, Adam Tews, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program. Uh, we are discussing shutdown, how COVID shook the world's economy, the latest book by Adam Tews, who's a professor of history at Columbia University. Uh, thank you so much, Adam. Uh, some sobering reflections. And uh, we look forward to, to seeing what you're able to, to, to incite us on next. And, and we appreciate your, your, your regular Substack updates, which give us almost minute by minute, by minute histories of the present. Um, Pleasure so, to be on the show, uh, William. It really is. Thank you so much. Thank you as well to you, our listeners, to our listeners who, who tuned in. And thank you very much to Antoinette Engel, who produced the show wonderfully as always, from Cape Town, South Africa. And a reminder to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts, to check out africasacountry.com for regular writing and criticism from an African perspective, and to stay tuned next week for another episode of AIAC Talk uh, from me, Will Shorky. That is all, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>